0: We had a meeting in early March where we said, okay, this thing's really looking like it's getting out of control. We committed to just uh, an entirely new roadmap. On Monday, uh, San Francisco went shelter in place. Within about 48 hours, we launched curbside pickup. Within a week, we launched delivery. The features that we launched within that first week now make up two thirds of the revenue of the product. Wow. So I think sometimes there's also value in being very, very quick to respond and adapt to a changing environment.
1: Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. We are happy to have our next guest, David Rusenko, who's currently the GM of e-commerce at Square. Before that, David was the founder and CEO of Weebly, the web hosting service that he then sold to Square. David has been featured on Forbes 30 under 30, and I've been waiting for this a long time. Uh, The interesting thing about David is that I actually worked for a competitor when Weebly was getting off the ground, so super excited for the conversation. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. So, you know, let's start with... um, with where you are today and, and how things have been going, it's been a really crazy, I would say, like two and a half months. How are you doing through through all of this? How is Wibbly and Square, how are they like kind of holding up as companies? Are you guys seeing growth?
0: I mean, I think it's been like a truly unprecedented time. And you don't say that lightly um, for everyone. Um, you know, a lot of hardship, I think. You know, especially at Weebly and Square, we've been on the front lines of seeing that um, and just doing everything that we can to help. So, um, you know, it was around, I think it was around kind of early to mid-March when it became obvious that this was going to be like a very major thing and it was all going to happen very, very quickly. And around that time, we really accelerated a lot of functionality to help small local businesses cope. And so we made some really critical improvements and some critical launches, Around you know, especially around local delivery, around curbside pickup, um, to really help everyone just completely shift their operations. And what we really saw was that I started Weebly a little over ten years ago. You know, had been working for a decade to help people get online, and all of a sudden, overnight, you know, a uh, three-year adoption cycle got shortened to three weeks. You know, and everyone just had to be online, and so it, it, it was a pretty crazy sprint for us. But I think you know, the team really rallied around. You know how how do we help some of these you know small local businesses? How do we give them what they need to survive and and to keep going? Can you talk about
1: some of the initiatives you talked about cursside pickup how How did you guys even like think about doing that? How did you you know launch it? It's probably really crazy to launch products so fast. Like, you know, what what changed in the way you were you guys were doing that, and what are some of the concrete features that you launched?
0: The timeline it, it was it was pretty crazy, as everything is, um, you know, with the pandemic. Um, there was a meeting. You know, we had a meeting in early March. I don't remember the exact date, but but I believe it was a Wednesday, where where we said, oh, okay, this thing's really looking like it's getting out of control, and. You know, and we really should be just throwing out our old roadmap and just thinking fresh. And so we got the team together that day. Um, We said, let's spend two days figuring out what our new roadmap should be. On Friday, we committed to just uh, an entirely new roadmap. On Monday, uh, San Francisco went shelter in place. So, you know, the teams are working just incredibly hard while all this chaos is happening around them um and then within two days so on wednesday i believe it was wednesday or tuesday or wednesday but within about 48 hours we launched curbside pickup uh within a week we launched delivery so we, we we'd accelerated we pulled forward the launch of of uh local delivery by almost two months and launch it in a week and that was really just all hands on deck did like people work through the night? How did you? That that sounds crazy. I mean, through the weekend, you know, uh, it, it was you know through through parts of the night for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of late nights, early mornings. Um, but I think you know it is crazy, and and it was crazy too when a lot of things started happening like. Uh, daycares and school shutting down and people having their kids at home. And, you know, I think that that's not normally something I would ever ask anyone to do. Um, but people wanted to do it because, you know, it was obvious. You know, sometimes I think when something really crazy is happening, like you want to see how can I help? You know, and this was a, in many ways, this was the team figuring out how they could help.
1: And how have you personally adapted to this? I see in your garage that looks as cool as a Zoom background would look. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've you've adapted both personally and you know as a manager to remote work.
0: So if you don't have the visual, you know the background of my garage here, I have I have a few guitars. I have you know really the um, uh, the showcase piece is uh, a Rhodes piano, which which I've been learning to play. I mean, adapting personally, I think, I think like we all have, right. It's been a, you know, it's been a learning experience having, you know, I have two young kids. I have a, a three and a half year old and a one-year-old, you know, being home all day. That's the benefit of being in the garage is that, uh, is that, is that I have a little bit of a distance, but, but, but it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's come with a learning curve, you know, on the personal front. And also, um, also it's been great getting rid of the commute. You know, we do our family dinner now every day at, at 6 PM sharp, five fifty five actually. And so, Um, so, so I think those things have been great. Um, although, although at times it has been pretty challenging. And then I think with the team, you know, we're, we're trying new things, we're experimenting, you know, I think it's always, you know, you kind of, kind of invent as you go sometimes, um, here. And one of the, one of the things we tried recently, and this was, um, uh, last Friday, we tried a, a catch-up Friday, you know, because we, you know, what one thing we noticed is that people weren't really taking vacation. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, there's definitely a whole continuum of of um, of suffering, I guess you could say, of of people able to do their job from home. that, you know, certainly some of the people that have it the hardest um, in in that set is people with young children and who haven't been able to send them to preschools and daycares and such, but still have parents who need to work, and so. And so we instituted, you know, we, we gave a day off to everyone that we wouldn't normally give off just to encourage people to take a little bit of time and, and recharge. And, and we also did this thing called a catch up Friday where it's just kind of flexible. But, you know, the idea is whatever in your life that you're, um, you know, maybe it's work, maybe it's even something in your personal life, maybe it's your taxes, but whatever you have that's hanging over your head right now, um, you know, we'll cancel all meetings. And then this is a day that you can just kind of focus on um, just like burning through your to dos, whether it's professional, or personal. Oh, I life.
1: love that. That's such a good idea. We've also given a day off, and I think we're giving where we think of doing this again this month. But we this the idea of a catch up Friday. Wow, that's uh, I'm gonna propose this in the exact meeting tomorrow. <laughs> uh, that's that's really awesome. So let's go back to like your beginnings, and you you became an entrepreneur, and you have like a, I think a super interesting background. You're born in France, you grew up in Morocco. You came to the States for college. What do you think, like, kind of, you know, when did you know you wanted to start a company? How did you, like, get to that point?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. Yeah, Ed, you know, as you mentioned, I was born in France. Um, I lived there for seven years before our family moved to Morocco, to Casablanca. Uh, so went from Paris to Casablanca. Lived there for 11 years. Um, uh, my parents uh, were, were educators. They started a school in Morocco. And I think I you know, got a good bit of exposure to what being an entrepreneur was like through that. Um, moved when I was 18 um, to uh, back to the US. Um, my dad was from Pennsylvania, my mom was from Wisconsin. Went, went to Penn State and uh, around junior year, I had um, kind of as part of a class project, just kind of thought that I could, I could write a web app to make building a website easier. Started that, um, skipped out on school, Uh, a semester early, drove literally cross country to uh, San Francisco, and and that was in January of 2007. And then just started working, you know, there's three of us, it was myself, Dan and Chris, and we started working on Weebly, uh, just living and working 24 seven out of a two bedroom apartment in North Beach. And, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, 11 years later, uh, you know, we sold the square that that was about two years ago. And really the, you know, the mission ultimately has remained the same the entire time, which is, you know, helping entrepreneurs succeed, you know, providing this economic empowerment for people to, um, you know, have the tools to have the ecosystem of uh, products to be able to help them start and grow whatever their dream business is um, and help them be successful with that. The part
1: I love about the story is that you started Weebly and uh, I worked for a competitor also in North Beach and I lived in North Beach and every day I would walk to work and I think you, you know you guys were doing really well. You were definitely the leader in this space and I was a product manager and I was trying to learn and I would always go to your website. I remember walking to your office and I'm like man these guys really did it. If I start a company I want to be more like them one day and you know it's just such a uh, I, I always, I've used the examples in the early days of branch. I remember sitting around the table and using the examples and giving you as an example versus the company that I worked for. And that was just, uh, you know, you, you definitely, I think without even knowing, because we met recently through the Sequoia Scout program, you had a huge impact on my life. So I think that's one of the reasons I was so excited to interview you today.
0: That's awesome to hear.
1: Okay, so you've... Um, You got acquired. And I think the interesting thing that I think probably other founders listening to the podcast are wondering, you know, what happens? How do you drive growth after your company has been acquired? I think many founders leave very early on, but you've stayed. It's been two years. Uh, And tell us a little bit about that transition and how, like, your job looks like today and how you feel you're driving growth for Square and Weebly at the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I get this question all the time from from founders because I think there's this, there there's kind of this, you know, this magic curtain and like a lot of people don't know what's behind the curtain and like, is it, you know, is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. I hear so many different kinds of stories. I do think it's highly situational as to whether, you know, an acquisition goes well, whether you enjoy the experience or not. You know, like one one person that that I could say, for example, that I that I talked to um, and good friends with, who's actually really also enjoyed the acquisition process, was um, Emmett uh, from Twitch, and he's got nothing but good things to say, and actually has really enjoyed working at Amazon. And so I think, yeah. you know, I think I think there's a few different things that can come into play. There there are changes, but they're not all. There, there are actually, you know, for me, there, there are, you know, a few changes you can consider quote-unquote negative and actually a lot of changes you can consider positive. You know, I think, I mean, one of the biggest things for us just in our experience was, um, you know, the two companies were incredibly aligned culturally, you know, and also from a mission perspective. So I think that really helps. I think there can be a lot of hang-ups when the companies are just different. The products that we offered were very complimentary. It was, I remember the, the day we announced the acquisition, we announced it to the team, we announced it to the press. And there were literally no questions. Like, you know, we announced it to the team. They're like, "Yeah, that makes sense. Like, that's awesome. Like, we're excited." Like, we announced it to the press, and it's like, any questions? Like, no, that just makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> so I awesome. think I think that that certainly had something to do with it. You know, and and then otherwise, you know, I think I think it's a process. I, you know, I think one of the things that Square did really, really, really well is you know, for a while, there was sort of the meme, meme floating around that you have to leave the company on its own. You know, you can't touch it, don't screw it up, just let them do their own thing. And, you know, and and obviously that that had come from, you know, a lot of experience with acquisitions where the acquirer kind of, you know, suffocated and strangled the acquired company. And, you know, to, it, it just kind of, you know, really, really made things go south really, really quickly. And, you know, I think Square did a really good job of being somewhere in the middle. So, I think that you can go too far in extremes. If you just integrate on day one, you're going to get a lot of unhappiness. You're going to get a lot of friction. um, You know, you could potentially suffocate the acquired company. Um, On the other hand, if you don't bring them in at all, then you end up with this kind of small island, you know, off the country, like off the coast of the mainland, and it can just be forgotten about and not incorporating plans. And so I think, you know, what we did was we really planned. You know, we spent you know the first few months kind of intensively planning what the integration would look like in terms of especially in terms of the product yeah and then we 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 sort of you know integrate a little bit and then we kind of you know sh- slowly but surely kind of continued integration about 6 months after the acquisition um everyone you know all offices had moved in and integrated um and i think that was about the right time frame for it was not too fast not too slow but but it meant that you know we weren't just some group or team that was forgotten about
1: that's great and then do you have any, you know, the my favorite part of the podcast is asking this question, actually. Do you have any interesting growth stories? And I think it would be interesting to hear about things that like, drove growth in the earlier days for Weebly uh, versus things that drove growth after the acquisition as you guys built integrations. I think um, if you have one or two stories, I think the audience would probably really enjoy.
0: So the early growth story is kind of interesting Um I've I've done this talk at startup school and elsewhere where you can you can see the slides if you want if you want to do a good visual if you google it you'll find it but effectively we, you know it was about the first 2 years or so after right you know after starting Weebly that uh that actually our adoption was bad like it wasn't good like our new users per day kind of all of our metrics were um were very poor and what happened was you would, you know, we got some press, it, it, it was kind of this exciting, you know, new idea. And we get some press, but it would spike up and then it would come back down. And it would settle at a higher level, which was good. But then it would be that that level was like slowly decaying and going down. So maybe like the numbers were small back then. You know, maybe we went from like 15 new users a day to like 100 new users a day. But then like two weeks later, we were at 50 new users a day. It was kind of decaying, right? And so things were definitely trending in the wrong direction for a really long time, like probably about two years. And then there was just this point in time when it just like reversed and then just started taking off. Like not like a hockey stick, more like just like a consistent slope up. And that was in terms of new users per day. So new users per day was increasing linearly. And what do you think drove that? You know, it's hard to say exactly. I think, I think there's a few things. Um, you know, one, the product, there was a few key product improvements that we made. One was WYSIWYG. So before that, it was kind of like more like a CMS, more like a template. And then you could publish to preview. And so WYSIWYG was one of them. The other one is that, is that we had, so it's a long time ago, it's going to date the story, but back then, uh, the predominant browser was IE 5.5. And we didn't really do much testing on IE 5.5. We used Firefox at the time. Chrome really wasn't that much of a thing. And then we discovered that 75% of our users were on IE 5.5, and it had, like, these enormous performance problems, right? And so we fixed the performance (laughs) problems, and that helped a lot. And then I think the third thing is, um, I don't know exactly how to quantify this, but I do feel like word of mouth, as an effect, is what really drove a lot of our growth throughout the years. And... Word of mouth is not instantaneous. And and I have this visual that 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 I use personally. And I, I kind of imagine like the sound wave like traveling across the country and then like echoing back. And like that's how much time it takes word of mouth um, to like come back. But I think it just takes, you know, even when you have a great product, even when it gets out there, it can take six or nine or twelve months before word of mouth really starts to kick in. It's just it's just this time of like humans having conversations with other humans and and it just takes time, uh, even when you have a great product. So I think what really drove a lot of our growth throughout the years really was product-driven. Um, but it takes time for that to really pick up.
1: Got it. Wow. How about now? Uh, any interesting, in the, in the past couple of years, any interesting like, features or campaigns that you guys ran that you think like, drove significant growth or significant re-engagement uh, with your audience?
0: Growth in the context of an independent company and growth in the context of, you know, a subgroup or a product within a larger company is, is sort of two very different things. But I think, you know, the story The story most recently, like we talked about with, the uh, you know, with everything happening during the pandemic, you know, all, all those features that we talked about accelerating that, that we launched, the features that we launched within that first week now make up two-thirds of the revenue of the product. Wow. So, you know, there was from basically... Um, in early March baseline to the last time we reported earnings, so from that time frame, the uh, GPV or, or, or the processing um, on the Square Online Store product went up over five times. And a lot of that was obviously situational with people needing need to get online. But like I said, about two-thirds of that comes from the features that we accelerated in that first week. So I think sometimes there's also value in being very, very quick to respond and adapt to a changing environment.
1: That's very cool, and and I mean, just wow! Two thirds—that's uh, that's intense. I think the other question I usually I usually talk to people about their careers and getting into growth. But I think you have such a interesting, different journey. And I've also noticed that you have some interesting hobbies. I like read that you are a stunt driver for fun, and you do you're a DJ, and you've done some like really fun things. Do you think like you know this idea that people say that entrepreneurship is like kind of a risky thing. Do you think there's like any correlation between some of the stuff you you do for fun and starting a company?
0: I don't personally believe that entrepreneurs are like these like huge risk takers. I think it's different. I think that entrepreneurs are optimists and i think that entrepreneurs don't see the same risks that other people see and so you know they look at the they look at the potential downside they look at their chance of success and they just evaluate those odds differently and so i think you know kind of the key pieces i think you know that 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 define a successful entrepreneur it's sort of that it, it is that optimism that 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 sense to say i'm going to go do something when for a lot of other people it appears that this is like a foolish endeavor um or like a low odds endeavor um and then the other thing is is you know one of the main things that separates successful entrepreneurs from from the rest of the pack, I think is just the persistence and perseverance to just keep going because progress is almost never made in, in sort of like one discontinuous giant leap, right? It is waking up every morning and deciding to continue working on something and you keep doing that and you keep doing that and, you know, and you put yourself in the position that, you know, sooner or later kind of luck turns in your favor and and you could kind of capitalize on that. So, I, you know, I, I again, I don't actually think entrepreneurs are, are, are these like huge risk takers. I think they just don't evaluate the risk the same way.
1: I think that's a really good point, actually. I never thought about it this way because I am I am the opposite of you. I do not do anything that's like risk. I, I do not jump off of planes. I'm like a pretty, you know, I like to go outside the box, but in terms of my personal life, I'm very risk averse. And people always ask how they start a company. But I think the way you framed it, it's, uh, it's incredibly interesting.
0: Well, it's interesting because throughout the company's life sometimes, and especially as the company grew, people would come to me and they say, you're being really risk-averse, aren't you supposed to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. And I was like, no, I. we were risk-averse with how we decided to raise capital, with how we decided to spend, with how we, you know, at times we were very risk-averse in making sure that we had enough buffer. And throughout throughout the decade of an independent company, actually there were very many times that the company probably would have gone under if we hadn't had some amount of risk aversion. So... Um, so I think it's, it's, it's just taking calculated risks. Yeah. When
1: it comes to where you focus your energy to these days, how do you decide like what projects to focus on, uh, both as a company and, and, and you personally?
0: Time optimization is, is like this, uh, you know, ultimate pursuit that, that, that you'll never get to the, the perfect answer. But, you know, personally for me, um, I try to, and I never quite get there, but I always try to only have 50% of my time to be scheduled. Mm -hmm. And I try to have 50% of my time be unscheduled. The good news on that front is that it forces you to prioritize and make trade-offs as to what you actually want to be involved in. In reality, I probably... Actually, end up with two thirds of my time that's scheduled, something like yeah. that. But yeah, but I still end up with with a very significant amount of time that's unscheduled, and for me, that's really helpful. I try to batch it. Also, I try to take like Monday afternoons and you know various times during the week, and I tend to it, basically. I mean, there's a few different buckets, right? So, so one bucket is just your your sort of ongoing system. Of like how you manage and run the company and how how it keeps operating and you know ideally that actually doesn't take up a ton of your time ideally ideally you can optimize that so that the sort of day to day ongoing process you have the right people on your team that can manage a lot of that Um, so let's just say maybe that takes up broadly about a third of your time and then you know about a third of your time or more, sometimes hundred percent of your time at any given point is gonna be taken up by whatever these sort of like big projects that only you can do are. And you know, that may be hiring if you're uh, building um, your team, your, if you're building your executive team, for example. It may be fundraising there may be any number of things only you can do. And, you know, oftentimes you could just kind of broadly bucket like a third of your time. And then I think about a third of the time you can spend, I, I like to spend about a third of my time on like really important strategic projects that are, you know, critical. So maybe at any given time you have, depending on the size of the company, let's just say you have a dozen or a couple dozen things like, you know, going on. Um, But if you could really zero in on sort of like the one to three things that can make a big difference and spend a little bit more time on those and also build the muscle on the team so that there's like a productive relationship with you being involved in those. Because sometimes, it can turn all kinds of unproductive things. It can turn into like a report out, you know. It can turn into like like an accountability thing. But like I think when you can sort of leverage your skills as an entrepreneur and and, and help, uh, you know, in a very like collaborative brainstormy way, like help some projects get off the ground. That for me is really fun.
1: That makes that makes total sense. I definitely identify with that. Sometimes people don't want my input, <laughs> but you know, I try. <laughs> it's tough. So. You know, the other thing I was kind of curious about was really around mobile. And I think you guys, especially at Weebly, started web, you know, web and desktop first. And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners since branches in mobile and the way we, we, we do a lot on our mobile growth. How do you guys think about mobile? How did you transition to mobile how did you think about that as an opportunity versus a challenge?
0: I mean, it's a great question. So so I could kind of speak from Weebly, you know, a few years ago and then and then today as well. So, you know, Weebly is an independent company. It's something we really put a lot of time and energy on. I don't know that we necessarily could say that we perfectly nailed it, but we were the company in the space with the most investment. We, you know, we were really trying to, um, you know, our goal was to, uh, build an experience that was purpose-built for mobile. So not just taking the desktop experience and porting it over, but really understanding what exactly people were trying to do. And the app was successful. I think inherent in building a website or managing an online store is a lot of complexity, and so there's a challenge. Like I think on on mobile in general, um, there has been a challenge to bringing like sort of deep productivity apps um, to mobile. And and so you know we certainly dealt with that over the years that's sort of a separate you know that's that's sort of the management app or whatever you want to call it that's also very separate from a from a separate mobile you know bucket of work which was which was making all of our websites and our online stores really be mobile first and you know because these days um you know a very large percentage of visits you know uh that are happening you know to small businesses websites or online stores are happening on the phone and and that all makes complete sense right and so um, and so that I think we've actually done a very good job at throughout the years in making sure that it's, a, you know, that uh, you don't have to go through the effort of recreating two different websites or that, you know, that, that, that the experience is designed for desktop and doesn't work on mobile. And so I think that's, that's another thing that we really spend a lot of time is on making sure how do we both minimize the amount of time that a small business owner might have to take because that time is very precious, but also make sure the experience works well across platforms.
1: That's great. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you're right, not everyone thought about it that way, and I think you guys are definitely the first ones, and I think it probably paid off really well. And today I think, what do you, do you think like COVID has increased mobile visits or we, we've seen I've, I've looked at trends across all and like you know desktop visits have increased significantly and mobile, I've seen it increase on the weekends, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, what have you guys seen as, as maybe big trends during this time?
0: The trend that I think kind of will continue on in the future is is just increasingly you are going to see a lot of share, you know, mo- mobile share increasing. I, I, I don't know what that terminal rate is. I don't know what, like, the, you know, the final destination is. It's probably not 100% mobile. Like, at some point in the future, that'll probably be, like, it'll level off at some point. Yeah. but you know i I just know with my personal behavior and a lot of the trends that I see, you know is that increasingly experiences that uh, used to be foreign to do on a phone are now like habitual. you know I remember the first time mm-hmm. I bought something from Amazon on my phone and it just felt so weird like and it felt like it was clunky and there was overhead and now buying something from amazon on 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 the laptop feels weird, you know, yes. and so I think i I think we'll continue to see that. There will be a place for sort of larger form factors, you know, la- you know laptops, desktops, you know, especially with, you know, any, any kind of very serious productivity activity, you know, I think uh, is currently a little bit more natural. But I think it's probably also a given that, that those ecosystems kind of merge over time on a longer time frame, maybe like a decade's time frame.
1: Very cool. So, you know, before we go to, we have these three fun questions at the end, but before we go into that, the last question is really around, what do you think the role, you know, you, you've had a very successful career, both as an entrepreneur and as a leader, what are some resources that you use to grow as a leader, as a manager? Have you had any mentors that helped you? What advice do you have for others that are trying to grow, maybe build their own companies or, or become managers and leaders?
0: Once your company really gets product market fit, and you and you see the results of that, and you start seeing a lot of growth in the business, you know the next main challenge is is growing the team and scaling the company. And I think a really you know a challenge very intertwined with that is is growing and scaling yourself. I mean, it could be just so difficult, uh, so difficult, and. I, I even think like as entrepreneurs, we oftentimes don't acknowledge that like starting a company is an emotionally abusive process. Like it is oh, totally, it is, it is like so painful. And so I think on the topic of scaling yourself, a few things come to mind. So, so the first is, and, and this is probably advice that's more applicable, you know, when the company is around, you know, maybe around 30 to 40 employees is um, just get a really good I would say a, a, a good coach paired with a really comprehensive 360, you know. And to me, I'm a big believer in in comprehensive 360s. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was was that first 360. I think a coach... I,
1: it's an ingrained in my brain, my first 360. I'm never going to forget it, so...
0: And I think that's the value of a coach, right? The value of a coach isn't there to try to tell you how to run your business. The value of the coach is is there to help you look at the data in front of you and help you process it because at the end of the day, you are still a human being. Like you do still have your own biases and, and emotions and all that kind of stuff that come into play. Um, so that's one. Um, two two books I would highly recommend. One is Managing Under Pressure. Like this was a really interesting book for me. The title is a little bit cheesy, but One of the key sort of uh, pieces of advice there, uh, key pieces of insight, is really making a distinction between like a stressful situation and a high-pressure situation. Mm-hmm. And a stressful situation is basically defined as a situation where the demands of your environment exceed your resources or ability to provide. So like in a, in a very simple example, let's say you're hosting, well, we're not doing this anymore, but let's say you're hosting a dinner party <laughs> at 7 p.m. and you have 12 things you have to get done before that dinner party and you, became, you can become very stressed because the demands of your environment is like the amount of things you need to do and the time it'll take you to do that exceed... Your, your ability to meet them, which is the time that you have. Um, but the good part about stressful situations is that there's like one coping mechanism that works every single time, and it's just to say, so what? Because like, is it like, like, if your close friends are coming over and you don't have, like, you didn't get to the twelfth thing on your list, are they oh going to stop being your friends? No, like, they're still, you're bit. still going to be fine. So, in a, in a in a stressful situation, which is the majority of them, you just say, "So what? It's not the end of the world. It's going to be fine." A high pressure situation is like a stressful situation, but your performance has a huge impact on your future. So, you know, you can imagine your classic high pressure situation is basketball game and you go up to take the buzzer beater shot and your performance matters because you will win or lose the game depending on your performance. Right. The key insight there is that clutch players, people who perform better under pressure, don't exist. The clutch players and they've gone through all the sort of statistics and did kind of a huge academic study here. Clutch players, the ones who we think perform better under pressure, just perform to their own personal average. So everyone else in a high pressure situation, their personal performance degrades significantly. And so they basically go through and talk with and sort of study these sort of like wow. kind of clutch individuals and come up with like, you know, about a dozen different coping strategies that they implement to try to like calm themselves down enough in high pressure situations, just perform normally.
1: That's amazing. I'm gonna to listen to this book. I'm driving to LA this weekend. This is like I this is this is amazing.
0: So the other book is called Leading at the Speed of Growth. It's a super cheesy title, but effectively, this is all about sort of a few really key critical stages. Um, And it's basically just interviews with entrepreneurs who have gone through um, you know, a few of these stages, it's kind of like, you know, zero to, um, you know, maybe 25 employees, kind of that first product market fit stage, then sort of like that scaling up the business stage, um, which is, you know, which is very painful. And then sort of that, the stage beyond, which is sort of reinventing your business and kind of operating at scale. And so um, th- this was, you know, when we were, you know, when the team was about um, 30 or 40 people, this was one of those books that was um, super helpful for me.
1: Thank you so much for sharing. Okay, so we will end. With three fun questions for the audience to get to know you better so question number one if uh you had to delete all the apps in your phone and you could only keep one what would
0: that app be what would that app be i don't know it's that that's a difficult question but i probably rely on my email the most to keep my life together so that's that's fair that is but probably showing my, my age a little bit. But email is like my most critical foundational app.
1: I think that's totally fair. I use my email as my to-do list. I totally get that. Okay, second one is, if you had an app that allowed you to speak to an animal, what animal would you pick?
0: Which animal would I pick? These are great questions. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is this like is, is this like a twist stuff. on like the animal that, you know, is your like mascot or something like that? Uh um, no, I don't know. It's just like uh I think this this tells more than I mean, that. have to be it would have to be dogs, right? Like dogs seem like they're like the like the like the most fun, like friendly animals. Like they would probably have like just really wholesome nice things to say to you.
1: I mean I would pick dogs, but we've had birds and tigers and monkeys and fox like we've had very a lot of answers for this i think dogs would be
0: funny and they would be like just like encouraging and they would just make it would be so excited
1: as an optimist okay so the optimist (laughs) speaks the dogs okay it makes sense (laughs) and then the last one is like maybe if you look at your phone is there a a, an unlikely app for for people who know you and you have an app that's a little bit unlikely because i think that could tell us something interesting about
0: you The first one that comes to mind is that maybe about five years ago, I learned to play Bridge, uh, the card game, um, because my in-laws play a lot of Bridge. And so every family gathering that that we went with the in-laws, there's a lot of people playing Bridge. and, And maybe this shows my arrogance a little bit. I figured, oh, I mean, you know, if they could do it, I could do it, I could pick this up. And learning to play Bridge is very, very, very hard. It's about, to be able to play at a beginner level requires roughly maybe 40 hours of instruction um, at the most basic beginner level. So, um, so I did pick it up. Uh, we do play Bridge a lot um, at Christmas and other holidays. Um, and so I have a whole folder with Bridge apps on my phone.
1: If, uh, I would love recommendations. You know, the interesting thing is the first app I've ever spent money on was a Bridge app. I spent $40 on it, which was a lot because at the time the app store is very new. And I completely understand. I don't have anyone to play bridge with. Like no one, none of my friends play bridge. I used to play with my parents growing up and I loved it. And my math teacher like taught me how to play. And it's a
0: fun game. It's it's, it's like, it's like very like, like intellectually, you know, like basically really works good. out so many different parts of your brain. It's like, it's like team play. And like, it's,
1: I think it's, it's kind of amazing. Like people say that they play bridge in retirement communities and like, it makes me look a little bit, it's like the, I look forward <laughs> to getting old so I can play bridge. <laughs> but um man this was really awesome thank you so much for your time i took so many notes i learned a lot uh i already have action items for the next exec meeting based on our meeting so um really really appreciate your
0: time thank you awesome well thanks for having me this was fun i, I feel like these were really great engaging and and you know atypical questions this is awesome
1: thank you so much for listening if you like the show please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.